The papers and comments on NHL and CLL by Dr. Leonard are typical of the exploding clinical research database in the hematologic cancers, and another important corner of this field is CML. I met with Dr. Hagup Kantarjan for his take on what happened at ASCO in the field, particularly as it relates to the second-generation TKIs, dasatinib and nilotinib, which were not only presented at ASCO, but shortly thereafter in the New England Journal. So as people know, the discovery of imatinib has changed the course of CML. So frontline therapy with imatinib has produced a complete cytogenetic response rate at five years of about 65 to 67% and a major improvement in the survival. But there is room for improvement, and that's based on the notion that Patients who fail imatinib therapy are rescued significantly with nilotinib and desatinib. Nilotinib and desatinib are the second-generation more potent tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So this brought the idea of comparing the new tyrosine kinase inhibitors to imatinib in the frontline setting, and this was the genesis for the two randomized trials. So the first one is the nilotinib versus imatinib in newly diagnosed CML. This is the study where the first author is Dr. Beppe Saglio, and this is a study that randomized patients to either imatinib 400 milligrams a day, which is the standard of care, or two different dose schedules of nilotinib. The first one is 400 milligrams twice a day, again, the approved dose of nilotinib for imatinib failure, and the second one is a lower dose of nilotinib, 300 milligrams orally twice a day. And the primary endpoint of the study was the incidence of major molecular response. Approximately a major molecular response is a three-log reduction of the disease or a reduction of the disease by 99.9%. So what this study has shown is that the two schedules of nilotinib have demonstrated superiority in terms of the 12-month rate of major molecular response compared to imatinib therapy. In addition, it showed that nilotinib also was associated with a significantly superior rate of complete cytogenetic response by 12 months, which is another surrogate indicator of long-term prognosis. We also saw in the study that there was a clinically significant reduction in the transformation rate of CML to accelerated and blastic phase. And this is a tangible point in terms of patients' benefit because once the patients develop accelerated or blastic phase, their outcome is bad. We also found overall that the nilotinib schedules produced on average less of the bothersome toxicities like the grade 1 to 2 bothersome fluid retention, periorbital edema, skeletal aches, bone aches, and things like this. So this study has confirmed, at least with the early follow-up, that nilotinib is superior to imatinib therapy in terms of the early surrogate endpoints and in terms of a significant reduction in the transformation rate. There was also an 18-month follow-up of this study at the ASCO, and at least one of the two arms of the nilotinib, the 400 milligrams twice a day, is showing a significant survival advantage. Any comment on the QT prolongation? So surprisingly, we did not observe uh, significant QT prolongations. So that puts to rest the previously fearful notion of the black box. But we have to be cautious that this was within the entry criteria of the study that excluded patients that had QT prolongation over 450 and was very strict about not allowing drugs that prolong the QT interval. 
So as long as we follow these guidelines, then nilotinib and the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors are quite safe in terms of the QT prolongation and such cardiotoxicities. Now, the second study is a similar study, and that's with desatinib. Desatinib is a dual SARC-ABLE kinase inhibitor, again, highly effective in the setting of imatinib failure. And this was a two-arm randomized trial of desatinib at the dose of 100 milligrams orally daily, which was found in the follow-up studies to be as effective and probably less toxic than the 70 milligrams twice a day, which was originally approved. And the second arm was the standard care of imatinib, 400 milligrams a day. The design of the study was slightly different. The primary endpoint of the study was the incidence of complete cytogenetic response by 12 months. And the study fulfilled the endpoints. We saw a significantly superior rate of complete cytogenetic response by 12 months with the satinib compared to imatinib. But like with the nilotinib versus imatinib trial, we saw also a significantly higher incidence of major molecular response and the trend for a reduction in the progression rate to accelerated phase and blastic phase. Also, on average, we saw in this study less of the bothersome toxicities which favored the desatinib. So we saw a lower incidence of muscle aches, nausea, vomiting, skin rashes. What we saw a bit more was grade 3 to 4 thrombocytopenia. And we also saw pleural effusions in 10% of the patients, but these were all mild to moderate and were reversible with modifications of the dose and interruptions. Do patients usually have symptoms with these pleural fusions? They do have symptoms, and oftentimes they present with cough or shortness of breath. How do you manage it acutely? So what we do is stop the drug. Uh, I usually give them a short course of steroids like prednisone, 60 milligrams daily for three days, then taper to 30 milligrams daily for three days, and then stop and repeat the chest X-ray, and if it's negative or markedly improved, one could restart at perhaps half of the dose. Now, these are transudates? These are usually exudates. What we see is lymphocytic exudate in there. What's the presumed mechanism? Nobody knows, but in the past, what we thought was it could be related to the effect of desatinib on PDGFR, And more recently, there was the notion of the association of peripheral large granular lymphocytes with pleural effusions. So we think it could be an immune-mediated mechanism. Do you ever have to tap people? Most of the times you don't. In this study, we had to tap three patients, if I recall well. But that was not a significant problem on average. So, of course, one question is, we don't have a head-to-head comparison of desatinib and nilotinib, but indirectly and also in your clinical experience, how would you compare them? I think with the early follow-up, we can say that both of these two drugs are more effective than imatinib if we consider the early surrogate endpoints. And one has to wait for maybe longer-term follow-ups at three to five years to look at the event-free survival and progression-free survival rates as well as the transformation rates and survival to see if one or the other drug will give us more of an advantage. In the editorial that accompanied the two papers in the New England Journal by Charles Sawyers, he brings up a number of relevant points, including his thought that in terms of moving forward, maybe the issue is going to be combining kinase inhibitors. Can you talk about that concept? 
I think the more potent second-generation kinase inhibitors will solve most of the problems in CML. They are going to reduce the transformation rate, and it's going to be very difficult to beat the survival that we have seen at 10 years with imatinib because if you exclude non-CML death, the estimated 10-year survival is over 90%. So what we're going to start looking at are other important endpoints like event-free survival, which is a combination of events related to death, transformation, but also getting off the study for toxicities and others. And we're going to look at progression-free survival, progression being resistance or transformation to accelerated and plastic phase. The question is, can you combine the second-generation TKIs or combine the new ones with imatinib? And I think my opinion is that we'll buy more toxicities. The real question is, can we cure CML by adding something to the TKIs. And I think this is where we have to invest efforts in terms of taking patients who are in complete cytogenetic response but are still molecularly positive and try to add something, and that something could be a pegylated interferon or some of the old chemotherapy or targeted drugs like decitabine or omacetaxine, which is previously known as homoherringtonin. The other possibility is something brought up by Dr. Sawyers, which is to try to combine a third-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor, one of those drugs that suppresses the T315I mutation, which so far has been resistant to either imatinib or the second-generation TKI. And there are several of those under development, such as a drug called AP24534 or a second one called DCC2036. Maybe you can explain a little bit more about the T3151 mutation. Is it present at diagnosis or does it usually come on later? So mutations in general that cause resistance to tyrosine kinase inhibitors are rarely, if ever, found at diagnosis. They result from a selection pressure from the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And if we look at patients who develop resistance to imatinib, and that's usually about 2 to 4%, on a yearly basis, what we see is about half of them have mutations. And those mutations are in the binding site of the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so they prevent the binding and therefore confer resistance. Most of them are sensitive to the second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors like nilotinib or disatinib or bosutinib that we'll discuss in a second. However, there are rare mutations, and one of them is the T315I mutation. And this mutation occurs in about 20% of all the mutations. So if you multiply 4% resistance rate annually by 50% mutations, you're down to 2%. By 20% T315I, you find that If you look at the prevalence of maybe 80,000 cases of CML today, the incidence of T315I is uncommon. It's about 500 cases a year. But that's an important mutation to suppress because it is possible that in the long run we'll see more of that. So that's a mutation that is amenable to the third-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors like AP24534 or DCC2036. So you seem involved with every one of these studies. And the third one I wanted to ask you about, which was presented at ASCA, was bosutinib. Can you talk about what that is and what this paper demonstrated? So bosutinib is less well known than nilotinib and desatinib simply because 
the drug was developed by a company that did not have much interest in it, and they wanted to wait to get both the frontline and the salvage studies. Bosutinib is a dual SARC-ABL inhibitor like desatinib. It's a very potent drug. It does not hit either CKIT or PDGFR. So that's a drug that presumably will not cause too much myelosuppression or pleural effusions. We have completed both the salvage studies post-imatinib failure, and there we see very positive results in terms of complete cytogenetic response rates of about 50%. And as of August 2010, we will have the data on bosutinib versus imatinib in the frontline setting. So we're hoping that this will also be positive, and therefore we will have at least three drugs other than imatinib, meaning nilotinib, desatinib, and bosutinib, which could be superior to imatinib and could replace imatinib in the frontline setting. What we have to be careful about is the cost of these drugs, particularly that imatinib is going to get hopefully off patent in the year 2014. And so we could have generics, which are 10 times less expensive. So the annual cost of imatinib would be hopefully less than $5,000 versus annual costs of forty dollars to $90,000 for these drugs. Now, if we demonstrate five-year event-free survival differences, which are significant, say 20% difference, then I think cost will not be an issue. But if we get to the five-year follow-ups with the new generation TKIs and we find that the progression or event-free survival rate difference is less than 5 to 10%, then there could be an added consideration of cost of the drugs in the equation. What about adverse events with basutinib? Basutinib surprisingly has less adverse events than several of the other drugs. The one problematic issue is diarrhea that we see in the first one to two weeks, and that's usually self-limited. The other complication are liver dysfunction, abnormalities, elevations of either the bilirubin or enzymes, but mostly it's grade one and grade two, and it hasn't been that much dose limiting in patients on treatment. We do not see pleural effusions, we do not see significant myelosuppression, and we have not seen a QT interval signal. The study reported 84% of patients having diarrhea. Is it usually easy to manage? Right. So the diarrhea is any grade diarrhea. Usually it's grade one, and it's usually limited to the first one to two weeks of therapy. So the diarrhea is easily managed. I would say that less than 10% of the patients will have severe diarrhea or prolonged diarrhea that requires additional interventions. 